Hello everyone, welcome to our podcast on fantasy this time. Again, we're here on Zoom because of the current corona crisis. And today I'm joined by David, Lucas and Tiana, our student assistant who has been an invaluable help with preparing this course for you. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we're going to be talking about Kylie Chan's White Tiger today. And I thought I'd start off the session by asking you guys what you thought of this fantasy book. When I first started it, I pretty soon figured out that this is certainly not the fantasy text that I was looking for. Well, not, not <laughs> looking for, but that I was expecting, right? I wasn't expecting that kind of fantasy. I would say that the vast majority of fantasy texts that I have consumed um, over the last couple of years were largely inspired by the typical Anglophone Celtic mythology mm -hmm. kind of kind of vibe. Um, and White Tiger is something completely different. Sure, there is mythology in there, but um, we are deep within the field of, of ancient Chinese mythology and religion. So that mm -hmm. was that was a big change and that was certainly fascinating and that would uh, made a page turner for me. Absolutely. Great. Uh, Tiana, what about you? Um, I agree that the fact that it had the Chinese pantheon in it was was pretty cool. Also, Hong Kong as a backdrop, so to speak, is also pretty interesting. Um, usually, I feel like most fantasy is centered on the outside, if that makes sense. So it's like mm. the landscapes, etc. But it's like super city centered, um, which mm. is interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a it's a very urban kind of urban fantasy, I would say. Yeah, I Lucas, what, what about you? When, well, when when you say a very urban kind of urban fantasy, yes. I want to unpack that first, maybe. Good I, idea. I, Go ahead. Before we forget about that, no, uh, I meant uh, I was wondering what you meant exactly, uh, because <laughs> I feel like urban fantasy is very urban already. So do you? How how is it more urban? <laughs> I guess. Oh, I was just picking up on what Tiana said. It is. Oh, okay. Um, well, it's true so that it was it, well. It's set in Hong Kong, right? This, these yeah. people live in this very urban metro, metropolitan area. Um, but then, on the other hand, the access to the mountain where the heavenly palace is—that's somewhere else. That's actually in in Wuhan, I believe. Uh, so, not yeah. not very easily accessed these days but um it's certainly not as metropolitan as the rest of the setting so mm -hmm. it's it's uh i don't know it's sort of and i mean we're talking about hong kong which is mm. one of the mega cities on yeah the that's planet. true right? mm. that's so true. there yeah. is certainly in another level to urban in a way um, mm. yes i mean I certainly mean, berlin is sure urban and so is cologne or dusseldorf but hong kong is just a new level of urban mm. I suppose, well, I, sorry. <laughs> I suppose what I noticed is that uh, Hong Kong also plays quite an important role because it's described in quite some detail. We get information on the public transport. And we do get that in other urban fantasies as well, but I do think that it's, it's sort of described in a very, very detailed manner. And I have read reviews that tell me that people who live in Hong Kong think that it's a very well, let's say authentic uh, depiction of Hong Kong. All right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, 
if you've read it, you've read it. Now, uh, <laughs> my thoughts when it comes to uh, the text, I remember when we were, when we were like kind of looking for a fantasy text, mm-hmm. this was one that we were very on the fence about originally because not, but not kind of because of the urban fantasy elements in some aspects, but also just because uh, there are so many fantasy texts in Australian literature that really engage heavily with a kind of East Asian mythos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like this, I'd say this book in particular really turned me on to this idea of Shenmo as kind of a uh, oh, yeah. a generic category, right? This gods um, and demons fiction, mm-hmm. uh, as some people call it in, in English. And yeah. it it really resonates, not necessarily like on, a, on an analogous level, but it really reminds me of something like This Present Darkness, uh, where it's kind of a combination of the literary uh, and fantasy very centered on these uh, kind of demonic, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, aspects rather than uh, what we would consider traditional, right? Even though we do have a Dark Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but is the Dark Lord traditional? I mean... <laughs> I mean, I mean, it really depends. I mean, the Dark Lord figure is certainly a staple in, in you know, Western sort yep. of fantasy tradition, so no Yeah, but not in the White Tiger. Text ever does without or could do without that dark lord kind of figure. Um, I really have no idea whether or not it's, it's, it's such a staple thing within Chinese literary traditions. That would be interesting to find out. Um, we... But the thing is, the dark lord that we have here is actually the love interest, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, it's not the antagonist at all. Mm. Um, so it really plays with that. You're right, it's like the dark lord figure is very uh, very widely distributed in western fantasy and so i don't think it's an accident that the love interest is called the dark lord but it's really playing with that notion Mm. Mm. Uh, (laughs) tiana did you want to add something to that um i thought when we were talking about if it's traditional or not Mm. i'd say from a probably chinese folklore standpoint it's very much so traditional so Mm. that nice play on actually um, the fantasy tropes in general, so that you, from mm. a different angle, have a completely different understanding. Also, I mean, in the book, they reference that they say, "Oh, we don't wear black because it's mourning," but here it's it's black but not evil or sad. It's like, hey, so mm. cool. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, because in, in in Chinese mythology or Chinese tradition, white is the color of mourning, so it's yeah, it's very exactly. different there. So it's like swap, mm. and I think that's pretty interesting. Mm. Yes, Lucas. Do, do we feel then that like this version of the Dark Lord is kind of a reconstruction, a deconstruction, or is it just an independent uh, <laughs> construction that's just kind of being prompted as a juxtaposition by our, our mm. expectations? I think, um, well, the, the, the writer is an Australian who's, who's married a Hong Kong national. So I think I think she probably does bring uh, Western expectations of the fantasy genre with her. At the same time, as you said, it's based on Chinese mythology, and this Dark Lord figure is, is taken from Chinese mythology as not a negative figure. Uh, he is a god. He's sort of scary, but he's not the traditional Dark Lord. So I think I think it would. To me, it seems to be a mixture of both. Mm. Okay, mm. and certainly because it's written in English and it's marketed at a general Australian reading public or, you know, just general Anglophone reading public. I do think that the author is probably aware of the implications of saying outright, this is the Dark Lord, 
<laughs> but I think she's, I mean, she's very aware of her investment, you know, basically mm. in both traditions in a way. And I mm. think she's very good at weighing these out against each other. Mm -hmm. um, still, I think there is actually a lot of subversion going on, constructing that Dark Lord and then automatically you know, in the same move, deconstructing that mm -hmm. persona, that personality. She stressed, Tina, by making it absolutely clear, dark isn't necessarily evil. Yes. Dark isn't necessarily associated with um, with any Western preconception or notion of, of, of an evil spirit in that sense. Mm -hmm. I think this is another thing that, that made it so interesting for me, because as I said, it's not the fantasy text that I expected, mm -hmm. and not the plot that I expected. Um, Things like that, details like that, that keep you guessing and that keep you thinking um, and that make you reflect profoundly upon the concepts and, and the preconceptions that you are as a reader bringing to the text yes. rather than the text doing you know, something for you, I guess. Yes, yeah. yes, I agree. Uh, actually, when I first started reading this text, when we were still deciding what fantasy text to choose, I wasn't very optimistic that this was going to be it because mm. I sort of had the image of it as being this stereotypical urban fantasy with yeah. the protagonist falling in love with the supernatural figure, bit twilight, and then <laughs> that, that again leads us to Fifty Shades. Mm. <laughs> but That's then I started true. reading and I really did enjoy it quite a bit. Mm. And I do think there's a lot of stuff that we can discuss with it. Um, yes, Lucas? Uh, sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, that that just made me jump, <laughs> you jump into stretching. that. Well, no, no, I was grabbing a book on my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> that just made me think back to, I, I think, our discussion right before uh, maybe the cast, to some extent, or at the very beginning here. Mm -hmm. Who can really say? Uh, it's all <laughs> blending now. Um, there is uh, certainly, there is Celtic fantasy, right, in the Australian tradition. Yeah. Just like there is in, in the Anglophone fantasy tradition in general, this is a very common thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was reading Daughter of the Forest for that, which is more Celtic than, than Celtic fantasy, maybe. <laughs> yes. Um, Celtic than the Celts. And, and I would say the reverse, expectation, <laughs> the reverse expectation was assumed for me. I was like, oh, it's just going to be the book because it's the book. Um, and I think, I think Australian fantasy kind of shows us that the book is not just the book. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that fantasy can be uh, so much of a different thing when we're, we're thinking about oh, the yeah. proximity yes. of the, uh, the literature, for example, and its relationship geographically mm. to its, its content, uh, to its form, and so on. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, Tiana, I know you've read a little bit more of Australian fantasy than maybe the rest of our uh, cast, okay. if you could say so. <laughs> so what do you think about that? Um... Oh, good question. I think this book especially, um, you, you, as you guys said, you have certain expectations and then they do get subverted. But I felt like several times um, because then I thought, oh, that's like um, the Chinese traditional depiction. And then I thought, huh, how, what, what do I know of traditional Chinese depiction? So it's again like, oh, here's me being an outsider and then on the inside. Um, I felt that the characters, well, we see it from um, Emma's point of view, right? Um, so she, I, I felt like she described it as an outsider, so I thought, mm -hmm. oh, okay. um, that's where I get like the information from. Maybe that's, she's unreliable as a narrator and uh, maybe she doesn't know 
hmm. going on per se, but um, I mm-hmm. think she handled that cleverly. Uh, at the beginning, she has like this book, right? Where it says, oh, these are the gods. Right. So um, it gives you a different angle, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Which again, then I think subverts expectations because I feel like she did a lot of research and handled it with a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. Don't know if, if you guys look at your copies, there's a very long bibliography at the end that really yeah. shows that Kylie Chen yeah. certainly put the research in. Yeah, and and there's a blurb that discusses how she went about her research of the the Taoist and uh, Buddhist uh, mm-hmm. angles that she went into, especially, and I, I think that's. A, that's intriguing stuff. And that's, a, that's an effective method, I think, too, for covering your, your bases, right? Because it is very difficult uh, to write from the outside uh, yes. and not threaten it your needs, own position. It needs yeah. a lot of, of care, really. And I think yeah. what Tiana pointed out, that the protagonist is also an outsider, I think that's a very useful strategy that we see in fantasy relatively often. Yes. Most often, probably in quest fantasy, where we either yep. have like a person from our world moving into the fantasy land through a portal or from a very secluded area of that fantasy land mm. moving into the fantasy land proper mm. um and in that case the outsider point of view uh, is important because that explains why we as the reader get the information that we need that we don't have but here the society that this outsider is being informed upon is of course like well, it's based on reality. It's a Chinese mythology. It's Chinese uh, society as a whole, Hong Kong society that she goes into. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, you were going to say. Yeah, just, just following up on um, a, a mixture of the things that you and Lucas just said. I just meant to add that uh, this paratextual engagement with this whole thing or the, the existence mm-hmm. of that extensive paratext to a fantasy yes. novel, you know, Yes. It's something that again struck me because this is not something that you would usually expect to find in 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 a fantasy text, unless of course you're looking at R.R. Tolkien, the scholar, um, right? When he's <laughs> being when he's being a philologist and a scholar, um, but that just speaks about how this is a serious text and how this is serious mm-hmm. fantasy in a way, right? And mm-hmm. I think this paratextual engagement really gives a a different feel and a different quality to the the story itself because you can tell there is research in there and it certainly changes it yes. did, at least for me it changed something about my perception um of a piece of fantasy fiction because it kind of it changes the the, the typical genre fiction association that you might mm. have with the fantasy text so um that was cool to see yeah i enjoyed it good i'm glad um <laughs> i certainly think that it's not formulaic fantasy or mm. like not strictly formulaic it does follow a certain uh conventions of the urban fantasy but it also plays around with it quite a lot um briefly before we move on with white tiger i was just wondering uh how it relates to or how it compares to other australian fantasy texts that we might have read i mean lucas started already with comparing it to daughter of the forest which was (laughs) more celtic than the celts Um, (laughs) uh, tiana you've read tales of the autori i think that's possibly a very good you did as well right lucas and i think that's that's a good text to compare it with in terms of australian fantasy so <laughs> okay should i go first yeah I'll go, for go it. first okay um well i think the main difference and we kind of touched on that at the beginning was that 
Tales of the Otori is a more, I'd say, a classic fantasy in the sense that it is like a feudal society. You would expect something mm -hmm. very traditional, etc. And here the tradition is embedded into this, I, I'd call it a modern society. So like, mm. again, the city backdrop is super intriguing to me. Um, and that's, I believe, the main difference because yeah, you you access the the mythological aspects just differently through both books because in one it's like oh here is the mentor figure, um, and in terms of the authority, right? It's like sort of known um, lore, but in in um, White Tiger, you have to like it's almost as if you have to peel away certain um, parts of of. I don't know. I'm lacking a metaphor here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, and Parts then, of the ogre, I think. <laughs> <laughs> They're I'm like sure. onions, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you, you get a completely different access to mm. uh, the mythology and to the folklore. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, it's both heavily inspired by East Asian uh, yeah. settings, East Asian mythology. So maybe that would be the perfect time to move on to discussing why that is, why there's so many Australian fantasy that deals with East Asian uh, settings or inspirations. I think, I, I personally think it really has to do with uh, what, you know, Berlant calls uh, feeling historic. So part, part of the fantasy genre is embedded in, in a literary history, but also a history of, of, of Anglophonic you know, conventions of, of mm -hmm. the English world as such, uh, the Celtic mythology uh, being one of the most heavily relied upon, right? Like Daughter of the Forest. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily connect to what being Australian is like automatically, right? It doesn't, it does, it's, it's not enough to just say, yeah, you know, it's, it's the <laughs> same thing. Um, it's just like how there have been shifts in American and Canadian fantasy over the years mm. uh, that have become slightly less attached to the Celtic mythos as such as time has gone on mm. um, and I would say that a part of maybe feeling historic or feeling genuine feeling authentic in the fantasy genre is more connected uh, to the real experiences uh, the real experiences in in Australia that might be more connected to people who live closer to them uh, right. who they engage with more directly and whose, right. whose histories intertwine with theirs more often yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah, no, just, just, just commenting on that, uh, um, there, there is also something that has been described as the tyranny of distance, right? So white Anglophone Australian national consciousness seems to be both historically and, and contemporaneously be, um, yeah, be influenced by that, by that tyranny of distance in so far as Great Britain as the old imperial center is concerned, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are other places and other areas that are just that much closer. And there is that proximity to Southeast Asia. There is that proximity yes. to China. Um, um, Papua New Guinea being the next, you know, neighbor state around. Um, and then mm. there is Japan and, and there you go, there's China. So mm. it, it makes a lot of sense from a geographic point of view and um, idea of isolation from, you know, Europe, Britain, um, probably naturally makes you look um, to your to your closest neighbors, which mm -hmm. are 
not the New Zealanders in that case, but but somewhere else in Asia. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's also about maybe aligning oneself more with the geographical location than with, as you said, the tyranny of distance. Yeah. Out um, of necessity. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Very the main there are super interesting books on that around there, and I feel ashamed that I can't name a single one. Um, there are a couple of ones that I have in mind. If, if I um, if they come up again, I'll link them here somewhere. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, there are two texts on our Elias uh, folder for materials, which deal with um, one. Uh, one is called "Crossing That Little Bridge into Asia," and it oh, yeah. also deals with just that. Uh, you know, Australian writers trying to connect more with their immediate geographical location. And then there's another text that discusses a literary history of Australians writing about Japan and Japanese writers writing about Australia. So that's that's quite interesting. That's Fatal Shores. Fatal Shores. There we go. Oh, okay. Or the Fatal Shore. That's it. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. Uh, you you link that. Um, up. <laughs> where was I going? Um, oh yeah, Emma, of course, the protagonist she's Australian and she goes to Hong Kong as an au pair or as a nanny and seems to establish a little community of Australians who've done the same thing in Hong Kong. I mean her two friends Louise and Alice. Louise is Australian, uh, a white Australian like Emma. Alice is a Chinese Australian so that's quite interesting. Yeah. It also probably shows the the close connection in that that seems to be a thing that young Australian women just do because of the connection, maybe. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting enough to begin with that she is finding herself um, a group of peers um, of Australians to hang out with and to hang around with in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, I don't know why, but I was expecting that the protagonist was going to immerse herself more, you know, in a community of locals. Right. Um, but the next thing she does is she finds herself uh, a group of Australian friends. Which is perfectly cool, and I'm not being judgmental here, but I just found that interesting um, to begin with. Um, yeah, one of them being being white Australian as herself, the other Chinese Australian. Um, mm -hmm. But she's still Chinese Australian, right? She, she's still got to be Australian for for, <laughs> for it to work. Um, uh, I mean, later on, she, yeah. she becomes more immersed in that social circle around mm -hmm. the Dark Lord, John Chen, her employer. Mm -hmm. And she become, becomes friends with his two servants, Gold and Jade, yeah. which is quite interesting. But that happens later on. So you're right. At the beginning, she's very much involved in this Australian social circle. It's not a substantial remark. It just, it, it was something for me. Um, mm. It may not be to you, but I thought, okay, why is that? So, no, I, I noticed mm. that as well, especially mm. at the beginning. Mm. Um, so I've, I've mentioned this, this is a little bit roundabout way of, of changing the topic, but I yeah. <laughs> describe her as a young woman with her social circle of young female Australian friends. So why don't we talk about gender in <laughs> a little bit? I, I know that was smooth, right? Segway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, gender is, is important uh, when you're writing. Uh, I, I would say from from the tradition of speculative fiction that is geared at young adults with strong female protagonists, mm -hmm. gender is an issue that will be addressed in these texts. Yes. Um, how do we feel like it's handled though? Um, I know that we were talking about one passage before. Uh, it's, uh, it's like 186, 187 in my book, uh, mm -hmm. right after they fight a demon. Uh, there's do you want this... to read that out briefly? 
I don't know exactly where to start, but uh, <laughs> here, I'll, I'll start here. Gold okay. shrugged. I just drew it back. He gestured towards me. Your lovely dress was ruined. He was right. The blood would never come out of the gold lame. I'd have to throw it away. Not important, I said. That dress cost a small fortune. It was a designer original. Leo sighed with exasperation. I don't know why I bother with either of you. Where's Mr. Chen's dinner jacket? Screwed up on the floor in the back of the car, I said. Leo sighed again. Go out and let him rest, Emma, Gold said. He's fine. I rose and turned. Emma, Gold said behind me. I turned back. Both of them were watching me with admiration. You were fantastic, Leo said. You stayed calm. You helped. Any other woman would have freaked out. He's right, Gold said. You're a pair of sexist pigs, and I'll deal with you later, I said. <laughs> yes, I think that was a wonderful scene. Yeah. Because we've got a set up as this special female protagonist, and we quite often still have that in just those young adult fantasies with a strong female character, that she's somehow special and different from all the other women, and it's this pernicious sexist trope that in order to be a strong, a capable female character, you have to be different from all the rest. And she very specifically calls that out here, like, mm. you sexist pigs. Mm. And I really like that. I, I will say, though, uh, I have a question about whether or not this strategy works mm. in the course of the, of the broader <laughs> genre, but also in the text itself, because are we given significant examples of women living in this society who aren't Australian? Mm -hmm who um, are, are succeeding in this way, or is it just our protagonist? Well, I think it's, it's sort of difficult to say, because I've, I've only started on the trilogy. I've read the first novel, not the later two, though I'm That's fair. waiting to find the time for <laughs> I like the covers. Yeah, they're, they're really nice. But anyway, uh, in White Tiger, we do have Jade the dragon, and she's, she's at least He's taking the form of a, of a woman, of a Chinese woman. And, well, she's, she's submissive to John Chen, but that seems to be more because the fact that he's a god yeah. and she's his servant. Um, we do have a couple of female, uh, let's say, well, they're working in the household of John Chen. They're not, they're not servants in the traditional feudal uh, definition they're more like uh, housekeepers mm -hmm. and there's one woman who used to be a demon and who's basically working on her own redemption arc and it's only a very slight storyline but I still thought that that was quite interesting to have this female character who used to be evil for all intents mm -hmm. and purposes and is now working on her redemption because often if we have these kind of redemption arcs for villains, it's, it's male good-looking villains, like <laughs> Marvel's Loki, for example, right? Um, I also think that gender is addressed in White Tiger, not only with regards to Emma, but also with regards to John Chen, her employer, and also Leo. So do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Tiana, maybe you've been silent for a bit. Okay. Um, okay, I'll do Leo first. Um, mm. Introduced as this big black guy who is gay, um, and uh, later it turns out 
that he is um, eight, I believe. Mm -hmm. That's and true, yes. I thought, I mean, oh, I thought that was... <laughs> how to put it? Uh, Sorry? I don't know how to put it exactly. Um, like, obviously, it was the black gay guy who would have AIDS. Uh, so yeah. That was a, bit... a little bit caricatured, right? Yeah, yeah that, that's right. And he's also the one who's taking care of the fashion needs of, of Emma and John. So I think he's probably the most stereotypical yeah, character. I agree. At but the same he's... time, I mean, yeah, there's, there's stereotypes going on with Leo, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, he is described as a sympathetic character. So it's a bit, you know, difficult. Oh. Lucas? In the broader, like, geopolitics of of that characterization, mm. uh, I guess I, I was begging the question of whether we have this character who is also, you know, transient, right? Like he, he's mm. not not Chinese. Mm. Um, he has he has traveled. I, I I believe he's an American, right? He's, yeah, he is, he's yeah. left he's left uh, America and joined this transient space, uh, the same kind of space that's being inhabited by our main character, mm. and potentially i guess in a way he's he's managed to find a, a space that he can be in mm. but only by by leaving uh behind uh america right and mm. then he's able to find a place where being black and being gay and, and being fashionable is allowed um all of which right. are not allowed in, in the u.s apparently um right and i think that's uh that's questionable to say the least it's a little bit a little bit dangerous of an assumption to travel with. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yes, um, in, in that respect, just, just picking up on that, Bill Ashcroft has this interesting concept of the transnation, right? Or mm. transnational literature in a way. Um, White Tiger, a profoundly transnational text, um, at least when it's talking about that particular character. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm more posing a question rather than knowing an answer or having an answer at the ready. So for the sake of throwing stuff into the um, into the pile here no sure yeah i think that's that's an interesting uh question is is it a transnational text i mean emma is also a transient as as lucas said she's also crossed national borders um yeah so it's a good question it's i mean hong kong is also such such a transnational space it is Absolutely. it is yeah so the choice is is relevant as well the choice of setting mm -hmm. mm. in terms of gender again i read the most amazing review of white tiger on goodreads and by amazing i mean it was it was <laughs> it was saying the book is terrible mm. it had one star <laughs> as the best reviews do <laughs> <laughs> yes and the thing is it was talking mainly about john chen and the review complained that John Chen was depicted as weak because he decides to um, to give up his, his godly powers in order to be able to raise his half-human daughter. And in order to do that, he has to be on Earth. And if he goes back to the heavenly realms, then he can't take his daughter with him. So he, basically, he chooses to be a very involved dad as opposed to be a god. Mm -hmm. And that review complained that that made him weak and how can he be weaker than the female protagonist 
and basically it read to me as saying, mm. how, how dare you have a male character who's nurturing? And I, suggest, family. I, I suggest that person should have a look at Greek mythology and check out all the <laughs> aspiring dads and fathers who, you know, basically stop giving a damn about their being a deity or whatever, just to be with a, with, with a sexy human woman. So. <laughs> yes. I, I, I hate to, uh, I hate to drop the uh, Western uh, Christianity card here, but uh, I, I think that it's, it's intriguing because this is something that is, is represented in the West. We're given two different examples. We have Greek gods uh, who have children mm. who maybe should have abandonment issues. Mm. And then we have uh, the Christian God who, who places his son there and is present there uh, and gives that to his children. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition that someone is unhappy with that construction of masculinity when it is already a pivotal, like mm. fundamental pillar of masculinity in a lot of Western cultures. It yeah, uh, an idea if, if, of nurturing if, through parenting. Um, absolutely, and I mean Jesus himself uh, in the Bible uh, uh, promotes the the meek and yeah. actually <laughs> sacrifices himself. I mean that's kind of the point. Yeah, but that seems to be ignored in in lots of Western constructions of of masculinity, especially you know the toxic masculinity that mm -hmm. we all have to deal with in one way or another. I wonder if that's not Orientalist stereotypes kind of becoming allied with this type of masculinity, uh, because right mm -hmm. the the idea of the the East Asian man, at least from an American context, mm. is this effeminate or weakened yes. stereotype. Yes. Um, and I think maybe that's what's being played upon by reviewers mm -hmm. like this. Please do not go harass this person. I I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to. But no, I no, not you. I, I'm talking to the students. <laughs> I just I just want to stress for for everybody who is watching or listening how oh, I love how we are using intertextuality to, to demolish that review. Um, so check out the bus video on on intertextuality. There, it's very that's good. a good example for what intertextuality can do. So we're you we're utilizing it as a weapon. I I just love that. And David, <laughs> by just referring to our intertextuality yeah. bus video, of course oh, you wow. make this an this intertextual so, connection. This is transcendence. Mm. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I guess, sorry, <laughs> what I was going to uh, say, sorry, is, go for it. Okay, thank you. Um, you're right, there's this orientalist stereotype of the feminized Asian man, and I think, I think it, there's a danger of going there by just describing John Chen as this nurturing character. He's also got very long hair, uh, but at the same time, he's clearly established as the love interest and as the incredibly good-looking love interest. So I think that's one of the ways in which White Tiger most closely uh, refers to the uh, urban fantasy, urban fantasy romance trope, in that we've got this amazingly handsome and beautiful and powerful supernatural love interest and there's several scenes where Emma describes his looks and describes his long hair and how he looks and there's no hint that she thinks he's effeminate no she she thinks he's beautiful and of course that aligns also with um lots of heterosexual women's expectations of what a good-looking man should look like because that's hardly ever 
the way superheroes are depicted, like super buff and mm. with muscles that basically drown them. That's really not what most heterosexual women, I think, I've been told, find uh, attractive. So. I also think, um, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I also think it's um, interesting that she finds him so good looking and that her general description of like the average uh, Chinese man is like a good looking guy, which um, oftentimes I feel, especially in media, that Chinese men aren't being perceived as attractive at all. So mm. I think that was a cool twist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely writing against that. At the same time, I think we always are dealing with two different sides here. You also run into the danger of exoticizing them. Mm -hmm. I do think that by engaging with them both on their, you know, the way how attractive they are, but also on their on the personal character level, I think she sort of skirts around that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what do you guys think about that. I'm just not, I'm, I'm in general, I'm, I'm not sure, and this is something that probably goes beyond the scope of both our discussion of White Tiger and probably beyond any discussion of, of fantasy, genre mm. fiction whatsoever, but um, whilst we're at it, I am not sure if I'm too comfortable with all these romance and love plots or subplots, mm. and, and, and they are there, and you can't make them go away. That's certainly true. I think the question that I'm trying to, to be posing and that I'm circling around here as I'm noticing is would the story work just the same or would it be just an effective fantasy text without that attraction mm. um, or romance, physical attraction element? Like, mm. does it have to be a thing? Um, or is it naturally a thing? I mean, the story works the way it works, the plot works the way it mm. does. Um, there is certainly nothing to change about that, but I'm sometimes worried about the, the emphasis or the importance mm. that people um, seem to identify in these in these subplots. And those always seem to be the juice behind the story. At the end of the day, it all seems to come down to, to, to that particular element that, that fuels the engine, so to speak. Yes. And I just wonder if there couldn't be a great fantasy story with a lot of juice, with a lot of mojo, with a lot of shebang, you know? without ever actually having to boil down to a romance kind of... Lord of the Rings? <laughs> yeah, but we got that same stuff going on in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, but well, come on, Aragorn and Arwen are the least important characters of all. Not, it's not just them, but I mean, there is, I mean, there are other characters. Um, I mean, there is, I mean, there is plenty of that stuff, I think. And, and I, I, I realize how this completely, you know, changes the direction <laughs> and completely makes this a completely different discourse, but... Um, I, just I mean, I agree it. with you in general that the, mm. the, the, there's a prevalence of Roman storylines mm. that's not necessary. That's not necessary, really. Mm. But I do think it's I mean, fairly I'm, it's fairly pushed to the side in the Lord of the Rings, at least. Mm. At least in the in the in the books, the mm. the movies. You're very right in that they sort of push the Roman storyline because that's yeah. what expected. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. Let's talk about the books. Yeah, yeah, I, then, then I agree. Under, under that premise, I do agree. Mm. That's, that's, that's correct. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I was just going to, you know, throw that break at you and, and see how you fare. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas, you look, you've, you've been looking like you want to say something for a couple of minutes now, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to, how to formulate this in a, a productive way. Um, 
romance is kidding. romance is used as as a motivating device in so much literature mm. so much uh, yeah. not not just fantasy is this no, a trope this is a all encompassing uh type of of novel writing really that romance is somehow an important element um and this is not something that the novel carried with it at its birth you know robinson crusoe is not a romantic story uh but today uh, a lot of our books do have a romantic element full mm. of juice uh, mm. i guess so to speak and when i'm thinking about this genre i think it's also important to think about marketing mm. right now we're we're targeting a bunch of uh teenagers who are going through puberty we're trying to get them a little bit give them a little bit of juice excite them a little <laughs> bit so that they'll come buy this book uh and it's not to say that this is a, a specific YA thing uh, but yeah, it's I, I don't think common. White, White Tiger is YA, but yeah. Mm. Well, I don't. I, the protagonist is a young adult in the sense that she's true. over twenty. I think she's yeah. even twenty-seven. Yeah. So I agree, it's geared at young people, but not teenager young, right? Well, so, well, when I'm saying YA, I, I mean adults. You know, young adults. That's I'm, I'm saying older than than fourteen. But <laughs> the, these people are these people are still. In, in a state of activity in regards to the romantic interests often, uh, mm. you know, and that is an aspect that matters to marketers. And it's an aspect yeah. that matters maybe to the, to the writers themselves as well. Mm. But, but it's certainly, sorry. But we also have to consider that this is, uh, this is a trope that is leaned on when we have the dark Lord to begin with, uh, if we think of him as kind of a gothic figure because there's a bunch Ooh. of reasons Ooh. that we could, mm -hmm. uh, of course there's a romance. We need mm -hmm. one. Otherwise, the, the tropes couldn't hold up. Mm -hmm. uh, if we have our, our super sexy god, non-human being who's, who's shrouded in darkness and lives like in a remote place and has, uh, you know, kind of his own <laughs> servants and his pet dragon, um, <laughs> I'm being a little bit... I'm being a little bit hyperbolic. Yeah, of course. If we, ha if we have that, uh, of course we're going to have romance mm. because that's, that's part of our, our collection of tropes. Mm. And could the story be told without romance? Mm -hmm. In this case? I, see, I definitely see your point. I mean, I was going to say that especially asexual readers sometimes find themselves alienated by exactly that kind of storyline. But you're right that... Uh, White Tiger especially plays with these tropes of the gothic Byronic hero even. Yeah. And of, of course there's this whole intertextual relationship to Jane Eyre that wouldn't be possible without you know. And we, we kind of need that then for sure, right? Uh, how, yeah. how, can we, how can we do all this intertextual genre mm -hmm. connection connections and also connections to Jane Eyre if mm -hmm. we don't have a romance? Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, if we look at other texts, I'm not going to single out any, but if we do look at other texts, there's all kinds of B-romance plots that are irrelevant. That Aragon example being, in my opinion, a good one. Uh, but also, if we, if we look at, you know, 1984, George Orwell, I love, oh, yeah. I love just hating on that one. Like, what is that even doing? Um, this is a common enough concern. I think even Illuminae. Uh, when we talk about it on the Sci-Fi Podcast, I'm definitely going to grill that as well. If you've already listened to it, you've already heard me. Um, but these these B-plots actually sometimes do take away from the story. I don't think in White Tiger's case, mm. but definitely in some books, it's yeah. it's just ripping apart 
uh, are, mm. yeah, I guess, I think, the depth. It, it's yeah, kind of playing, yeah. it's trying to create some kind of drama and sympathy by connecting mm. to romance that doesn't always play very honestly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. There's, yeah. there's plenty of books where the romance is non-essential and it would be better off without it. That said, White Tiger, because it plays to these generic conventions and because it also establishes this intertextual relationship with Jane Eyre, probably needs it. Mm. What do we think about this, this intertextuality with Jane Eyre, by the way? Hmm. I mean, it's interesting because I think it's the, the next within a zillion of texts that are taking up Jane Eyre for intertextual reference. Yes. But what it does is, is I mean, and, and it's also one within a zillion of, of, of fantasy texts who did that, right? Um, mm -hmm. But it's interesting because it, it, it transplants it to, to an interesting place on planet Earth, and that being to urban Hong Kong, yeah. um, into um, urban Chinese ancient mythology, all these mixes, um, and the melting mm -hmm. pot that it, it produces making up Jane Eyre, that is, that's interesting. That's, that's certainly interesting. I haven't thought about it that much along those lines. So mm -hmm. um, that is because I'm not too familiar with um, what we usually refer to as the classic English literary canon. Mm. So that is basically because my reading interests are elsewhere and my primary um, education in English lit are elsewhere. So I'm just coming mm -hmm. at the field from a different angle. I know they are around, but I haven't engaged with them um, as deeply as you would have, for instance, Tina. Mm. Um, so um, a lot of what I know is not firsthand, but uh, I could certainly tell um, where it's coming from and mm -hmm. where it is going. Um, and I certainly thought, okay, hang on, that's interesting. That's interesting. I, I, I haven't seen that coming, um, to be honest. Mm. Right. Lucas, you were going to say something. I, I find it to be a decision that's uh, part of kind of reworking this mythology, uh, mm -hmm. both in genre, but also in, in the broader geopolitical scenarios, right? Uh, it's not necessarily writing back, but maybe uh, writing, writing parallel to the canon mm -hmm. in in a way that allows for some kind of uh, independence from it as well. But I, I I'm so suspect of this, especially with Jane Eyre, with with Chuck Dickens. You, you know, there's some you reason like Chuck Dickens, don't you? <laughs> there's some there's some reason why. Uh, we're seeing this turn to the Victorians and constant re-cementing and mm -hmm. hyper-canonization of their ideas. Um, even if you're reworking them, you're still using them, relying upon them, making literary students read them so that they can better understand books. True. And I can't help but wonder if it needed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I, think it's, I think it's maybe good because of the whole gothic he's bringing so many ideas together like mm. davi talked about before this kind of edgar Allan poe vibe um certainly bringing in idea different ideas of the gothic into discussion with one another and with jane Eyre, bringing in all mm. these different ideas traditional chinese lore bringing in the ideas of, of gods and goddesses together with kind of the western perspective as, as our lens mm -hmm. uh through australia I, I'm not sure how to feel about it. It's very ambivalent to me. I was, I was just thinking about how maybe this is a nice thought experiment in a way, isn't it? Because uh, from a post-colonial angle, looking at that intertextuality of, um, and, and that reference to Jane Eyre or Jane Eyre as an archetype, if you will, 
from a post-colonial angle, it might be saying from an Australian perspective, hey, look, you folks over there in, you know, in classic English lit Britain, we can come up with the same kind of plot and we can make it transnational and we can make it a hybrid. We can make it Australian, Chinese, Chinese, Australian, you know, Anglophone, mm. Asian, like we can make it everything we want and we can make it a fantasy tax and it's actually that much of a cooler story, mm. a figure, you know, that. <laughs> sort of in a way. Yeah, Jane Eyre in Hong Kong with dragons. Yeah, Jane Eyre I in mean, Hong Kong, like there is nothing special to you, to you folks over mm. there. Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting and, and point of view. It's a lame, but lame thing to say, but I don't know. No, I've done mm. I get your point, certainly. Uh, Tiana, did you want to add something to that? I don't know anything. About <laughs> you don't know? Basically, I'm so sorry. Um, I, I mean, you told me that I've seen the movie, so I could see it, but other than that, <laughs> I wouldn't do you know. Think, do you think you would have seen it immediately, this Jane Eyre parallel? I don't think so. I think that. To be honest, this this could be a very generic story. Like mm. oh, we can't be together because not necessarily because my wife is in a basement or something, but for some reason or another, right? So yeah. I, I don't think it, it necessarily is anchored to any culture. So mm. I, I wouldn't have seen it. Mm. To be honest. I love that. I love that. Thank you, Tiana, because I think it's a good point because it proves that you do not need to know Jane Eyre in order to appreciate White Tiger. Yes. So, and that is another cool observation about intertextuality, isn't it? it um, it's a cool thing and it amplifies stuff, but it's not essential. Um, and maybe intertextuality in White Tiger is a non-essential thing. The story still works mm. without getting, you know, mm. um, getting the Jane Eyre bit in there. And it, it sort of, you know, revalues Jane Eyre in a way, and it kind of takes away some of the some of the importance, I guess, and some of that reverence. Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, I it think dethrones, it dethrones the classic, <laughs> it dethrones the canon in a way. Right. And I hate canons, so I love what you just said, Tiana. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, I think it's this, there's two different kinds of rewritings. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, White Sagatho C, which certainly wouldn't work very well if you didn't know Jane Eyre. True. Yeah. And then we've got White Tiger, and that. While it, I think, clearly refers to it through the storyline of the nanny, we've got the child, we've got the, the, in this case, dead wife, and we've got the obstacle to the nanny and her employer being together. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be the Jane Eyre connection. You don't have to read it in order to enjoy the book. Mm. Now, I hate to, to hijack the organization, but I think we've, uh, we've gone a little bit over our time. Oh. Okay. Always. Um, well, always. <laughs> we always do. I think we had a couple of other interesting aspects that we're going to talk about. Uh, Orientalism, we've only touched upon. Mm -hmm. The white savior figure, uh, we barely talked about at all. So I <laughs> think it's a good, it's a good point in this podcast to direct you all to the forum mm -hmm. where you can discuss this with us and with each other. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Thank you, guys. Thank you. I'll definitely write something up about the uh, white savior for you yes, guys to respond do. to. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a I'll make a entry in the forum saying how we plan these podcasts to be like no longer than ten minutes each. I just I just love that 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 flexibility and that dynamics. It's great. <laughs> it's certainly fun. So uh, thank you, David, Lucas, and Tiana for joining me. And thank you all. That's our podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. See ya.